Hi, this is Amber Gergarian, the associate editor at the independent uh, local grassroots newspaper here in New York City. I recently conducted um, a couple interviews, conversations with Reham Barghouti, uh, one of the founding members of the international movement for boycott, divestment, and sanctions, which came out of Palestine in 2005. And she is also a founding member of a local BDS branch here in New York called Adala New York. That's A-D-A-L-A-H-N-Y. Uh, this interview was not originally recorded for uh, the general listening purposes, uh, but I thought that it would be helpful to put it online as Riham has a treasure trove of information about uh, different sorts of resistance and action around Palestine um, and the struggle to free Palestine. So I hope you enjoy and uh, forgive any of the back and forth. It's this duplicity of things where it's like, well, there's the despair and then the hope of seeing people act, but then there's also, like, the duplicity within the action itself where it feels like on one side people are doing a lot and seeing actions every day. I know for a fact that there are at least three actions happening in New York City yesterday. There's multiple ones happening every day all around the world. And it's like you can need to be – but it feels like not much because still when you're just riding around, like, Unfortunately, I wasn't able to make it to any of the actions yesterday, so I was, like, in other parts of the city, and it's, like, it's, like, uh, radio silent. Like, no one's talking about it, no one's nothing, you know? So it's, like, it would only feel almost appropriate if everybody were protesting, but that's, um, that's not, if, if everyone were protesting, then the society wouldn't be the one that it is. Right, right, definitely. And, you know what and I mean? it's like, it feels like people are doing a lot, but not enough because, you know? And, and and that you know that is the case for any any social justice issue. You know, I keep you people have to keep things within perspective. So if you think about you know uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and yes, you know millions maybe went out, but you would expect everyone to go out. You would expect this to be a non you know um, uh, a, a very uh, uh, divisive issue, but everybody would have an opinion. And if you had, if you supported, you know, um, women's rights and reproductive rights and all of that, you would be out in the streets, you know, chanting yeah. and working. But but people don't. And this is the the you know the 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 reality of society is that most people on any topic are really quite apathetic. They might have an opinion or two, they might leak a post or two, but really they're not going to take action in order to change it. And that's why you call activists activists, because they're, they're the people that are willing to take whatever is their, you know, their topic or the, the issue that really riles them up and kind of go to the streets and, and take action. And that is not something that the majority of people do. Um, the majority of people stay silent, which is why governments get away with what they get away with. And why do you think that is, uh, let's right now speak, speaking specifically about the American experience or other Western experiences, why do you think that people are so apathetic? Yeah. Particularly when we've learned, like I'm just thinking about like the education that you learn growing up. You learn so much about civil rights. You learn so much about you know, uh, a fair amount about South African apartheid. Like, we've been, like, programmed to, like, with the Holocaust, right? Even we've been programmed to be against these acts 
So why do you think that people are so? Well, I mean, first of all, I would, I would, I would definitely. Or sorry, lost him. Or to say it's too sad. I don't want to think about it, and then that's it. Yeah, I would definitely, first of all, like distinguish between the U.S. and Europe. I do think they are different beasts and and different um, um, and and the extent of people's um, actual participation in government and in in issues True. is different, yeah, especially from country to country. Because you do have those countries that there's actually a referendum about every topic and people do vote about it and yeah. and there is action around social and economic issues that are specific to them. Um, and and put the U.S. to the side for a second and kind of question, yeah, we're, we are taught these things, but we're, very, we're taught a very um, sanitized version of history, right? We're not taught that, you know, prior to... Um, Martin Luther King Jr. and the boycott movement, you've had, you know, years and years and years of individual yeah. protests and people yeah. coming together and, um, you know, um, and, and that being shut down and uh, the, w we, we sanitize history, right? And we don't even know that then Martin Luther King Jr. did become more, um, uh, yeah, in his, Exactly, you know, and there or these changes, right? Like that my 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 biggest one is Helen Keller, right? I always tell you know, students, I'm a teacher, we learn about the fact she learned to speak and and communicate. We don't learn about the fact that she became a labor and union rights yeah. activist and she was arrested. Right? So we don't we, we don't really learn about the struggle and what it means to struggle and how difficult it is to struggle and how many years of struggle it takes in order for any change to kind of happen. We look at it as kind of, oh, you know, this kind of, all of a sudden, you know, apartheid ended in South Africa. All of a yeah. sudden there was the civil rights movement. All of a sudden, you know. Like it's never applied to the present either, right? And racism ended in the United States in 1968, you know? Right. And that, so it's all of these things. And what we are taught to value is not really civil um, um, uh, civics or civil uh, engagement. We are taught to value individualism. We're taught to value money. We're taught to value power. So there's really a disconnect, I think, um, in in U.S. you know ethics and ethos and and education that 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 really does demobilize people because we are not we're not we're not taught. And we're not um, engaged as young people to kind of, and there's those of us, you know, that again, and I think it's, it's it, you know, it's, it's a sizable number, but it's a, a, it's a minority that actually then look at social justice issues or look at something that's happening and say, okay, um, this is not right, I have to take action. But again, much like you're saying is, you know, uh -huh. then after a few years of them taking action and nothing happening, becoming, you know, um, disheartened and kind of giving up hope and saying, oh, well, it's the system. I can't really change it. Right. So, so it takes um, a lot. What you're saying is it takes a lot to overcome to even be active in this country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Okay. You know, and it, it, you have to find it from somewhere else. You don't, you don't get it from school and education and That's the larger society. It's not something... You know, we don't see on TV protests that are happening around the world regularly, you know. Yeah. We don't see um, issues, uh, political issues, 
um, happening. It's it's a, everything is a black and white. You know, it's either good or bad, and that's that. And there's no nuance to anything. Yeah. So, and this all pertains to what we're talking about. FYI. Um, so the so how would you compare that situation to say? I mean, you have firsthand firsthand experience of the situation in Palestine, where it's like the opposite. People are um, forced to be active. I mean, how would you compare those sort of? I mean, they're so, so different, but. The, the relationship that any given citizen has with activism here versus there. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think that um, for me when, you know, as a, as a young person, I went to visit Palestine because I was raised in the United States. Um, so both perspectives. Yeah, my, the biggest thing was uh, politics is always a major discussion wherever you go. And not <laughs> just, you know, not just yeah. You know, not just um, the political situation in Palestine and the occupation yeah. um, or whatever, you know, um, uh, atrocities the Israeli military was carrying out at a particular time, but really global politics. So how does China come into this? How does yeah. Russia come into this? What is happening in, you know, um, you know, in Namibia? I don't, you know, things that I actually as a child did not know and I would be talking to people, you know, my age, uh, teenagers, yeah. or and they would be so much m more informed about global politics than than I was here in the U.S., even though they probably had less access to yeah. information than I did, which was very interesting. Uh -huh. So that's one kind of um, component of, of, you know, the difference. And then, like you said, people are forced. So even if you don't want to be political in Palestine, even if you don't want to be active, you got to get to work, so you got to cross the checkpoint, so you got to and to engage with the soldiers, and sometimes you have to, you know, um, go back and forth between them. You will see the people's rights being violated. So there's not really a way to stay unaffected the way yeah. that there is here in the United States, where if you don't go to a protest or you don't go to an event or you don't open up a particular news site, you yeah. could really think that the world is fine. You know? Yeah. Oh my God! All you'll see is holiday ads. Oh. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Oh so God. yeah, I think that's um, that's uh, a few of the things, and I I don't know if that's specific to Palestine or other countries, but that 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 are going through uh, major struggles of liberation and and freedom. But I would assume that that's the case. That when when your um, when your life is so intricately intricately involved in the geopolitics and in in world powers and balances of power, um, you need to know. You need to be informed. Right. Um, so uh, we can compare uh, the U.S. and Palestine or the U.S. and other European countries um, where maybe people are more active. Um, but then you have places where, like, I don't know, it seems like in the UK there's some headway being made, but then you have other places like Germany or France where people go, anyway, sorry, I, I'm bantering here. Um, but uh, I want to do a sort of third part of this question. So let's talk now about other countries that are, what do you think about other countries that are, and you could skip over this if it's too in the minutia, but what do you think about other countries that are in the, I guess, developing world would be the correct um, term where people have, um, many discomforts of life that are reasons to protest 
but live in um, maybe like under some sort of regime or dictatorship, like well, I'll use Egypt as a personal example, right? Um, how do those fit into the global protest? Mm. Like how does that, I always compare those to the U.S. It's like in the U.S. our minds are caged. Whereas in those countries, even in those countries that I've been into that are part of the developing world where there is more oppression as far as freedom of speech goes, I still find that people in general conversation speak more politically and are more aware because of their realities, you know? Yeah, and I think that their, that, that, that struggle um, is different in different places. Yeah. So where, um, you know... Uh, what was I looking at uh, just today about Egypt? It's like they are, um, pr you know, they're, they're protesting for Gaza and, you know, for ceasefire. But embedded in that is very anti-CC sentiment, right? Um, that? And that's, that's what, like, the, that developed. Because you can't even technically create, like, civil society organizations in Egypt. It's yeah. very repressive. But that's people really do find ways, whether it's through culture or through, um, you know, uh, voicing their opposition to other issues where they can, you know, that are acceptable, where they can congregate and they can come together and they can voice it. And then having those smaller gatherings where, you know, um, they do express their opposition and, and try to find ways to, because people, this is the thing, is that people... This is what Israel can understand. This is what the United States, I don't think, can understand, is that people that are oppressed in any way will always struggle for liberty. It's, mm. it's, it's an inherent, basic need. It's, it's like water. It is like air. You can only subjugate a people for so long before they rise up. Mm. And... Yeah. You know, we saw this in the Arab Spring, in the Arab world, yeah. to differing degrees of success or failure regardless, yeah. but there's an uprising, right? There's yeah. a continuous uprising. People can only bear the brunt of oppression for so long before they, you know, something gives. And, and that's, I think, what, you know, you see in these, in, in these different countries that are, you know, dictatorships or whatever type of regime is that ultimately people do find ways to resist, you know? Mm. Great. Okay. Uh, last question off the question list. Well, I'll get to the question. Why do you think Palestine... Okay, so I was thinking about some... I've been thinking a lot about all the other... The ethnic cleansing, genocide, they're just like terrible things that are happening around the world. Like I mentioned on stage, you know, nobody was even really talking about the Congo until now. It's just popping off in Gaza. And um, but that's been going on for a while. You have just terrible plight in Afghanistan, Pakistan. I could go on, right? These things do happen. I think that Sudan, and I've seen some Sudanese friends being like, has the world forgotten Sudan? You know? Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot there. I think there's a lot of reasons why people pay attention to certain uh, conflicts, which I don't think I need to belabor right now. But I think one thing that I've been thinking of as well, and no shade to any other people that's facing oppression. Obviously, each situation is unique, and the location of Palestine is very important, but um, or, or the historical meaning, whatever. But um, why do you think 
what I keep thinking is that Palestine, the reason, part of the reason we keep standing in the Palestine is because the Palestine is putting themselves on the map. They, Palestine has been screaming and fighting and the Intifada has, you know, been pushing for so long. So why do you think, is there anything about, is there anything, and maybe this is a stupid question, is there anything about being Palestinian before any of this happened that you think would make them such a people that has resisted so um, so inherently, sort of, or is it just the way that they responded to the occupation? Like, do you see what I'm trying to get at? Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I don't think I know enough about the struggles that are happening in other places, and I'd hate to kind of um, yeah. speak on something that I'm not knowledgeable about. Sorry, but no I, I will say, in terms of Palestine, it's it's two parts, right? It is the existence of the ongoing struggle and refusal to kind of just die and go away is one component, you know, and I, I, I think back at how the first Intifada was covered in the United States, you know, the second Intifada, the various attacks on Gaza. Um, we have been able through different means to kind of mobilize um, solidarity internationally with the Palestinian struggle. And also, I think the other part of it is um, the that you know the 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 side that's oppressing us is also of interest to the global community, right? Israel and the support of the United you know with the support of the United States, it is such clearly like a central actor yeah. in the Middle East and and therefore globally that um, it is both has to do with our resistance but also our occupier. Um, and our colonizer being such um, uh, a point of interest to to the world for different reasons, whether it's economic interests or political interests or religious interests or whatever, you know, cross-section of that. Um, But that's what's kept, you know, I believe Palestine because, and, and what's playing out right now in Gaza is a testament to that because it is right now that struggle between the the, the 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 fighting that's taking place in the Israeli attacks and the Palestinian resistance to those attacks is you know is 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 a part of a much larger struggle in the region and that's why it's so scary and that's why it also could be potentially so hopeful because um, a, a war is being played out on on in Palestine. And that war is connected to the United States, uh-huh. to Russia, China, the global interests, uh-huh. Iran, Hezbollah, uh-huh. these global interests, and they're being played out here, which makes it also something that impacts everybody. Because uh-huh. like I said in the, in the event, um, a liberated Palestinian people will have a huge impact on the Arab world and on the global south. And uh, uh, a successful genocide of the Palestinian people will have a huge impact on the world and the way that other people, um, you know, other other uh, oppressed people are going to fare, you know, if this is allowed to continue. So I think that's a part of the, that's also a part of it. 
In this part of the interview, I asked Reham to comment on action by groups like Palestine Action, a network founded in the UK in 2020 with the goal of shutting down Albert Systems, Israel's largest arms exporter, by means of tactical civil disobedience and other forms of direct action. Uh, the reason I'm focusing on where um, this, these actions is that they're kind of, you know, popping up. Um, I mean, they're led by Palestine Action a lot of times, and you know, these calls coming from the Palestinians themselves. But then they're kind of like popping up simultaneously, grassroots around the country, um, in a more organic way than other sort of internationalist efforts um, have. Um, but sort of like BDS. So that's why I wanted to compare it. You know, we have we pro cover like mass protests all the time. So I want to expand a little bit into like the the way that these different types of protests can relate to each other and what it means to be following the calls of Palestinians and, and all this stuff. So that's where I'm coming from. Mhm. Mm okay. So and I read, you know, I, I read different uh, bits about the founding of BDS. And if you don't have the, uh, you know, specific. Uh, if you don't want to get into the specific founding story, that's okay. But when I'm asking how did BDS found in this first question, I mean, like, talk about how it came out of Palestine and then why the Palestinians came up with it after maybe having tried different things or what, like, how it falls into the larger scale of action um, and what, why that that made it important for its, when its founders were coming up with it. Um, yeah, so definitely. I mean, I think at the time that the BDS call was issued, which was in 2005. Like right after 2000, 2001, 2002, something like this? The BDS call was actually issued in 2005. Oh, it wasn't. And it came out on the one-year anniversary of the um, International Court of Justice ruling. Oh, about yeah. I remember this. Sorry. The illegality of the apartheid wall. Uh, but it came out of a time where in the United States, in Europe, uh, universities, uh, student groups were kind of calling for divestment. Different church groups had already begun discussing, um, you know, relations and ties to Israel. Um, there were, uh, there was some, you know, there was grassroots organizing happening. So it really built on what was happening on the ground. And we were in Palestine, I mean, you know, devastated the university. I was working at Beirut State University at the time, devastated by the impact of the Israeli reincursion into the West Bank, uh, the closures, checkpoints, uh, killing, injuring, land confiscation, expansion of settlements, and so on. Um, and we first did a call for um, international universities to end ties with Israeli universities. Okay. And out of that, we began to work with Palestinian um, cultural institutions. And in 2004, we issued the Palestinian call for academic and cultural boycott. And then people that worked on that began working with other groups, um, civil society organizations in the West Bank, in Gaza, in the 48 territories, um, among refugee groups um, in the Arab world. And uh, they they drafted this Palestinian call for boycott, divestments, and sanctions, and it was actually launched or issued on July 9, 2005. Okay. And so were you one of those? I, as part of PACB, as part of the Palestinian campaign for the academic and cultural boycott, we were we our group was part of those founding groups. Cool. So. 
um, when it was launched, there was over 170 civil society organizations that had signed on to it, uh -huh. Palestinian civil society, representing all sectors of Palestinian people. So those, like I said, in Gaza, the West Bank, the 48 territories, which is Israel proper, um, but also Palestinian refugee organizations uh, working in Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria, I believe, at the time. Okay. And what was the theory? I, I, I want to ask this together. What was the, the sentiment? You as one of those founding, you know, members, what was the sentiment at the time? And what was the theory behind um, using BDS? Because there's, and I'm asking this from the, from the perspective of kind of, you know, um, your, your doubters, right? People who are like, BDS isn't enough. It's not, you know, it's not, it doesn't have much of an effect or people aren't going to, as on an individual level, like go, you know, participate in this on a massive scale. So what was the founding sentiment and what was the theory, you know, for why this is a really, you know, could be a strong movement? Well, a couple of things. One, we were really inspired by the, and worked closely with um, anti-apartheid South Africans, and we were inspired by that movement's ability to kind of shift glo global discourse about apartheid South Africa and ultimately um, get even the U.S. and the U.K. to change their positions um, on, on the illegality of apartheid in South Africa and therefore put pressure on South Africa and ultimately, you know, change that political system, uh, you know, putting aside the, the, the factors that are still in play in terms of, you know, um, the imbalance of power and so on, but just at least removing that as the legal system of operation, right? And also historically, the civil rights movement here in the United States, I mean, we were all aware of, of the impact of boycott had on that, you know, on, on, on leading to tangible results and outcomes for the civil rights movement. But there was also a very long history of boycott within the Palestinian resistance movement. So, um, you know, uh, as far back as 1936 during the Great Arab Revolt against kind of uh -huh. this attempt to colonize um, Palestine, there was massive boycotts, refusal to engage with the British, um, you know, mandate authorities um, and so on, uh, mm -hmm. moving through to the first intifada where Palestinians burned their ID cards as a kind of attempt to boycott the whole military civil uh, uh, administration that was, um, that was controlling the, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Uh, people, you know, began to boycott Israeli products, refused to uh, work within the Israeli uh, civil military um, administration. So it, it's always been uh, uh, a tool that Palestinians and other people that are oppressed use. And because we all believe strongly in uh, a nonviolent form of resistance, because uh, we saw that, that the international community wanted to find a way, those people of conscience around the world that did understand what was happening, did want to find a way to at least express their solidarity in more tangible ways rather than just condemnation of Israel's actions. Um, we thought it was, it was a strong tool, and it is a strong tool. It's a tool that's been used by oppressed people throughout history. Um, mm -hmm. I think that detractors from the movement think that BDS is a goal or an objective. It's not. It's, 
It's a tool that you use to reach your goals and your objectives. And the goals and the objectives and the reason why the vast majority of these organizations and civil society organizations signed on to the BDS call was because the demands were very clear. The demands of the BDS movement are ending the occupation of all Arab lands, which includes the West Bank, Gaza, and the occupied Golan Heights, um, ending the apartheid regime that exists inside Israel, uh, so providing full equality for Palestinian um, citizens of Israel, and then most importantly, because it's the largest portion of our population, it's implementing the Palestinian refugees' right to return to their homes mm-hmm. and homelands. And um, that, those are the goals of the BDS movement. The way to get there is using the tool of boycott in addition to other forms of resistance. Okay. It doesn't in any way um, undermine any other form of resistance that Palestinian people are using and can use and should be able to use um, in order to, to reach those aims. So I think that's one reason why some people are critical of it is that they think of it as as a aim or a goal, boycott, but it's not. It's a tool. And the yeah. second reason why it's very critical is because it's housed in uh, the language of international law and human rights. And we all know that that's a liberal discourse and it has, it's, you know, it's problematic and I, I, I think we can all understand um, the limitations of human rights discourse. Yeah. However, there's no current other tool that can be understood in, on a global level like international law, international humanitarian law. So even when we're sitting there and calling Israel's actions genocide, we're using these same tools, right? When we're calling Israel's actions apartheid, we are using these same tools. And the reason it's important to couch it in that is because there is, to a certain degree, or to varying degrees, some support for international law and international humanitarian law, or at least, at the very least, an agreed-upon objective to to reach that as humanity, yeah. right? To yeah. to respect international law and um, in, you know uh, uh, all of these covenants that uh, not co- conventions, sorry, not covenants. Okay. <laughs> Scratch that. Conventions <laughs> that we've signed on to um, as as the basis for the way that we want to engage as human beings. Yeah. More so than any any other um, you know framework. Mm-hmm. So it's not to say, again, the BDS movement does not claim that this is the be-all and end-all or that, you know, um, that human rights has worked for us as a discourse, but this is what we have to work with. So it's a very practical application saying if the world community, and, and, it, and it has worked this way. So when we went in 2009, 2010 to um, speak with the Norwegian Pension Fund, and told them that you are invested in a company called Africa Israel. Mm-hmm. Africa Israel is building settlements inside occupied territories. That contravenes international law. And here is the proof. They divested. It didn't take them long to divest from Africa Israel and Elbit because we were able to do that. So mm-hmm. that is the reason why these tools are being used. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I get. Yeah, I get exactly what you mean. Uh, it's like you can't isolate yourself as a movement, which some do. And I'm not. I'm. I'm talking about kind of not specifically Palestinian movements, or not. 
can't isolate yourself as a movement from fully from the mainstream. You just can't if you want to see success. You just can't. So I totally feel you. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so what kind of success is in addition to, you know, in a more general, uh, in a, in a more general, like over time, what kind of success has the BTS movement seen um, uh, up until October 7th? And then what's been going on since October 7th, like any specific updates? Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, since 2005, you have definitely seen a growth of the number of unions, academic institutions or associations, churches. Um, other grassroots organizations begin to carry out like a, a diverse range of actions that fall within this boycott, divestment, and sanctions umbrella. And some of them do it within the auspices of like the BNC and the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions National Committee. And some are, you know, individual grassroots initiatives that are really not linked to anything but are built off of this same um, basis. Um, and it's, it's, uh, you've seen, you know, cultural workers come out, um, massive companies over the years stopped, stopped doing business with Israel. Um, and Israel has really, uh, these companies lost, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars out of targeted campaigns, um, like G4S, Orange, um, and other. Because of BDS's targeted campaigns, these companies were losing money? They were losing contracts, so you had city councils that you know would not contract would, would would withdraw contracts. You had um, apart apartheid free zones in Italy that would no longer do um, uh, business with companies that were profiting from occupation. So we targeted particular companies. We've been yeah. targeting particular companies as the BBS movement and kind of asking for global action around them. So whether it's Veolia. Um, uh, orange, um, okay, yeah. G4S, and so on. And as a result of that, local groups and community groups, you know, church divestments and so on, they would remove their funds from, from these companies. So, um, and, and in some cases, we have had like direct success where the companies then withdrew their um, engagement with Israel. The other component, though, is beyond the economic, is really the cultural and um, uh, the cultural component with a number of cultural workers refusing to perform in Israel, um, you know, artists uh, against apartheid, musicians for justice in Palestine, and so on, groups that have come together to kind of um, claim. And this has been, a ver the, I think, for the biggest achievement of the, the BDS movement has really been to crush this kind of... Um, impunity that Israel has enjoyed ever since its found, you know, its founding where people might be critical of Israel but were never willing to take any action directly um, to put pressure on Israel. Yes. And now you see that they are willing to. You know, there is uh, people that, you know, uh, uh, governments that are willing to pull their um, diplomats, right? Um, you are seeing um, towns and cities, um, you know, I think it was in Ghent in Belgium, announcing that they'll no longer purchase uh, from companies that profit from occupation, right? Uh, so you're seeing this, this possibility of being critical for Israel, not just being critical of Israel, kind of taking action in opposition to what Israel is doing. And obviously one side of that is the 
level of the atrocities of Israel's actions, really their genocidal actions in Gaza and, and, and that have been happening over, you know, the past um, several decades. Um, but another part of that is because we gave language for people to use, right? We provided them the tool and the language that they could use to say, you know, we are no longer willing to support um, these practices inside Israel. Yeah. So just briefly, since, you know, since Gaza, um, you've had the United Auto Workers, that's the biggest one, I think, calling for a ceasefire and pledging to look into their economic ties with, God, with uh, Israel. Yeah. And that's huge. You know, a labor organization in the United... You've had multiple labor organizations around the world kind of taking this position even as far back as, you know, 2005, 2006, Canadian, African... Um, labor unions, but for the United Auto Workers in the U.S. to kind of take, or, or international, to take that position is pretty huge. Um, like I said, um, you've had trade unions in, in India also issuing a statement calling on the Indian government to like cancel all agreements. And then you've had what, you know, I talked about also in the presentation was like dock workers in Barcelona and Italy refusing to, you know, unload ships, yeah. which we have seen before. This is the second part of the conversation that I had with Reham Barghouti of the BDS movement and Adala New York, and I try to pick up from where we left off. I'm just trying to realize, what, think about why you were talking about um, the dock workers. I think we were just talking about, um, like, okay, you were saying that, um, you know, since, uh, since, um, Gaza, we you know we've seen the UAW pledging for a ceasefire um, and, and looking at their economic ties with Israel, and even as far back as 2005 and 2006, we had train unions in India issuing statements calling on the Indian um, government to break ties, financial ties with Israel, um, and so I think that was leading you to segue into the dock workers. I mean, if you want to share any reflections you've had on seeing um, dock workers take action. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's it's heartening and amazing to see when unions, churches, um, cultural organizations, you know, kind of come up and take a position and say, you know, uh, we support the the Palestinian call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions, or we refuse to engage, you know, uh, with Israeli companies uh, or divest, or we plan to divest. But really, when individuals that are themselves, you know. Um, in 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 uh, in very uh, struggling themselves, you know, dock workers, um, individuals that have, uh, you know, their their very livelihoods, like it depends, they depend on it in order to be able to eat. Kind of saying, no, you know, we won't, we won't, you know, upload weapons uh, going to Israel to kill Palestinians. It's it's particularly heartening and warming, and it really brings brings it to the forefront how much BDS is a grassroots um, movement that really connects with people and enables individuals and groups to kind of take action um, based on their own moral consciousness because for the most part their governments are refusing to act. Um, so I think seeing that with the dock, dock workers in Barcelona and also in Belgium, you know, refusing to transport weapons heading to Israel um, is is key and and um, it's it's an important insight into the extent to which Palestine does touch and and what's going on now more so 
um, touches individuals regardless of economic, you know, background or country origin or any other kind of factor. Here, I begin to reference action by groups like Palestine Action, which founded in the UK in 2020 with the goal of shutting down Elbit Systems, Israel's largest arms exporter, by means of tactical civil disobedience and other forms of direct action. This type of protest is now spreading globally on a grassroots level as the genocide on Gaza continues. And what would you say about, I mean, uh, I'm sure you've been seeing, yeah, yeah, the all the all these actions um, that are, you know, I mean, in some ways very related <laughs> to what BDS is doing, uh, which I'll get into more in a second. But all these actions around the world now, uh, well, particularly in places where there are centers or mechanisms of arm, ma- ma- arms manufacturing, um, take being taken, anything from, like, spray painting, like on an Albert, you know, maybe um, rep office out in New Jersey or something like this to like larger actions where you have people, um, you know, uh, actually shutting down offices or um, whole warehouses for days or um, people, maybe not specifically, this isn't specifically like shut Albert down, but other of those types of actions, like the block the boat actions um, that have been taken by individuals what what, what's your like where does all that fall in yeah i mean definitely targeting many you know uh, weapons manufacturers uh israeli and like elbit and other um american weapons manufacturers is uh it's it's a it's a key component you know of the of the overall um bds movement whether they consider themselves part of you know, under the auspices or the umbrella of the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions National That's Committee, the BNC. Question. It's like they kind of are, right? I mean, even if you know, even if they don't, if whether or not they consider themselves, it is within the auspices of yeah. that because it is an attempt to kind of disrupt business as usual, which okay. is what is the, you know, the major objective of the Boycott and Divestment and Sanctions, you know, uh, movement and I and I we call it a movement not because everybody that is working on this is part of one collective kind of organization, but it's it it provides just a framework for action in, in locally, right? So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you kind of find what connects and and what is meaningful um, to you, and um, and then this is complemented with you know, actions that are taking on, that are being taken on globally. So, you know, the the BDS movement is as strong as it is because it's a global movement. And it's, um, and it has, you know, individuals. So Elbit has been a long-term, you know, target of the Palestinian Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions um, call for, you know, as one of, as one of the yeah. primary targets. Um, but each group, each individual community, um, will find its own way of implementing, um, you know, implementing this to make it make sense and to have impact within their communities. So, um, you know, the only question in terms of whether they are part of it is whether they themselves see themselves part of this global movement. And the second component is as long as they adhere to the principles 
that are put out with BDS, which is, uh, you know, uh, you know, against all forms of racism and discrimination. So um, that's that's intrinsic to that has to be part of what we are doing. You know, um, just as a point, you know, there there are people that um, will say they are, are doing you know boycott, divestment, and sanctions, but then um, their intentions are mere are really just um, to to cover uh, uh, white supremacist ideology or a real anti-Semitism uh, yeah. or something yeah. of this sort, and that's the only kind of um, area where you will see, you know, the BNC kind of come up with a statement and say, well, this group doesn't reflect the principles of the BDS movement as we've laid them forward. Okay. Um, Now I want to talk a little bit about um, something else, which is kind of, you know, because I think the goals of, I think that compare the goals of BDS and Palestine action, I mean, it's basically the same you know, I, well, I, I mean, like BDS is a lot larger, right? So with, right. within yeah. the BDS movement, you know, work against military industrial uh, targets are, are key and important. But when right. we talk about BDS, we talk about cultural workers, we talk about trade unions, we talk about academic associations, we talk about individual economic boycott. Um, so it provides a much broader uh, scope for individuals and organizations wherever they are at to participate, right? Where, whereas kind of doing direct action, which is amazing to see and heartening and provides a lot of media coverage, which is important, you know, and highlights kind of, um, is, 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 is one component of that broader kind of call for all forms of disrupting business as usual with Israel. And I want to talk a little bit about that is about the, um, the, the, this and this ties into the how have BDS's aims changed or progressed over time question, which is like, what is the importance? Because you were telling me during our last conversation that you guys started out with, um, you know, mostly within the academic and cultural sectors, and sure. you know have grown since then. And so, talk about you know like for a group like Palestine Action that's much newer and just focusing on Elbit, like what is the importance of having a um, or why can it be helpful, I guess, to have a, a, a smaller target at the beginning um, rather than trying to attack everything that you could possibly attack? Uh, yeah, I mean... But that the, from an organizing standpoint, almost thinking of, in this case, organizers as, as the readers, you know? Yeah, so um, so the, the, the BDS movement has always, uh, you know, believed in people working locally and connecting globally. So in your local communities um, and and from the onset, it was the idea was to find targets that made sense, you know, targets that have proven egregious practices and connections and are profiting from the Israeli occupation, make it something that you can create benchmarks and winnable kind of components of, of your campaign, um, identify, you know, uh, very creative actions that can then pull in community and pull and and get media coverage because you know individuals might you know I know there's long these long lists of like uh, consumer boycott products and I you know it's 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 great as on an individual level if you say I no longer want to purchase you know McDonald's or Starbucks or any yeah, of these but... other you know mass consumer kind of boycott calls. 
but that doesn't necessarily um, leverage, you know, what you're doing and have it have impact. So when it has impact is when it's visible and when it is organized, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah. and ultimately other people, you know, come onto it. So the BNC has put forward a priority boycott targets, and it, you know, it kind of tells you these are some of the 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 you know global boycott campaigns, like against Puma, against Hewlett Packard. Um, uh, these, uh, you know, there's other companies that are on the BNC website, and these are kind of priority targets. There is already global campaigns you can sign on to. You can get resources for those, and then in your local community. So, for example, in in New York, when we started in 2006, um, Adela, New York, uh, began organizing around um, Africa Israel, which was uh, an uh, Israeli um, uh, diamond mining company, <laughs> and that was building settlements, you know, m- mining diamonds in Namibia and building settlements in Palestine. And you know, this goes to the intersectionality of our struggles, right? So, um, uh, Lev Levayev, who who is the owner of Africa Israel or the CEO, I forget, um, was they were opening a diamond store in Manhattan at the time. And it just made sense. It wasn't part of a global, you know, BDS campaign at, uh, yet, but we saw it as it made sense. It was a New York City hook. Um, the, the, the store was opening, and we launched our campaign in 2007, I believe it was, um, at, with the opening of the store. Found out all of these, you know, horrible, horrendous, uh, labor um, violations that Africa Israel was doing in Namibia, um, kind of connected with workers' organizations there, found, you know, connected with uh, Bilain, where the settlements were being constructed and connected with Palestinians there, and then built up our action around that. So the, so the BDS movement kind of works as this kind of umbrella organization to provide guidelines, to provide, um, you know, uh, liaisons to kind of bolster whatever is happening, but not necessarily, uh, you know, delineating exactly what everybody should be doing, just providing kind of so- support for this and, and information that can be shared. So, list up, so, so what is like, what kind of actions can fall under BD, like BDS? Like, it can look like a protest. It can look like a calling, like campaign. Spell it out. Like, what are the varieties of ways action can be taken? So, um, the there are numerous types of boycott, divestment, and sanctions um, campaigns that individuals can participate in or communities. Uh, there are those economic targets and consumer boycott targets. So, when we see things like sabra hummus. Um, HP, back in the day, Motorola was a consumer boycott target. It's these, um, and and what you do is kind of organizing your community. So going to a local supermarket and seeing if there's Israeli, you know, wine being sold there or Israeli dates being sold there and kind of organizing a demonstration or a protest or even a letter to, you know, we always start with um, assuming people have better intentions so informing your your target of saying, you know, uh, your local grocery store, did you know that this is an Israeli product? Did you know that it's being, 
you know, manufactured in a settlement? Did you know that settlements are illegal under international law? And, you know, this is in violation. And providing them the information that they need. And then based off of that, kind of, you know, increasing your, uh, the, the level of your protest. So you can have protests that, you know, creative actions um, around, uh, uh, around stores. We found that it's really useful to, to be creative because that, you know, again, garners interest, you know, passerbys, providing information, and mm-hmm. then explaining, always explaining why you're doing what you're doing. So um, to have a boycott action, a consumer boycott action, provide the, the support and the evidence of, of that company that you're targeting, why these actions are so egregious and why people should, um, you know, be distancing themselves from it. So mm-hmm. consumer boycotts are a possibility. Divestments, um, so when you're working on in a more organized group as unions, as church groups, as um, pension funds, um, trying to get, you know, organizing around um, uh, divesting from companies that are carrying out egregious actions or profiting from the occupation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a good resource for those companies is actually an Israeli database uh, called Who Profits? Who Profits? Yeah, oh. it's a uh, it's a women's. Um, oh no, it escapes me. It's, like Israeli, it's, like Israeli. Anti- Israeli inside Israel. It's called Who Profits. They provide amazing resources and information about Israeli pharmaceuticals, Israeli banks, and their complicity in the occupation. Okay. Um, yeah, um, which ones are you know. Um, uh, uh, working within settlements, and it's been a, a resource for us for many years. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and so those that's on the divestment level. And then there's cultural boycotts, so calling on cultural workers not to perform in Israel, calling on artists to, you know, distance themselves, to sign on to cultural boycott calls. Um, we in Adela, New York, are right now working on the BDS mixtape, which is bringing together cultural workers to produce music in support of boycott, divestment, and sanctions. So actually doing like proactive cultural activity as opposed to, you know, boycotting, but kind of creating culture, art in the support of, in, you know, um, as a nod to Sun City and that kind of garnering or development of cultural workers, um, uh, alliances, working with them, working together uh, in a collaborative way that, promotes, you know, uh, 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 an anti-Zionist, um, anti-Israeli, um, pro-Palestinian rights kind of culture among mm-hmm. cultural workers that have already, you know, that wouldn't even deem to think to go to perform in Israel, but really want to be more proactive in their support for Palestine. And so speaking uh, of, oh, yeah. go ahead if you wanted to add. Um, no, just and then you know the 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 final part is like academic boycotts. So uh, academic associations, student groups, you know, calling on their universities to divest, um, uh, a refusal to engage with you know Israeli universities, especially those that are op- operating in the occupied territories. Um, so that's uh, so it really depends on where you're at, and the first step is always to find your community, right? figure out what your community is and what your connections are, and then begin to work with that. If the if your objective is to kind of, again, have some type of um, uh, impact in terms of being seen and in terms of 
you know, possibly economic impact as well. And um, speaking of of these uh, already kind of different different you know uh, sections within BDS, what uh, would you now seeing thinking of yourself um, zooming out a little bit, thinking of yourself as more sort of like someone who's been involved in general you know action for Palestine um, for decades. Uh, uh, now thinking about this question that's what are there other types of action that groups could or should be taking that haven't been taken yet so we're you know we have a BDS action various types of BDS actions going on assuming Palestine action and shut all but down falls under that we have um, marches you know um, calling into your senator we have walkouts um, rallies are um, you know, vigils say, are, do you think that there are like types of actions within the action toolkit that you're not seeing being used around this issue now? Can we act more or do we just need to try and organize more people into the actions that are already? I mean, both. Yeah, I mean, but, I think. You know, you got the question. Yeah, I, I, um, I thought about that for a long time and I, 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 I think it's more about, you know, doing more within all of that and, yeah. and, continuing to connect it. But even beyond that, what I think is interesting is, um, you know, I, like you've said, I've worked on Palestine, you know, liberation and, and Palestine um, freedom, you know, fighting for Palestinian freedom for decades now, right? And the, what you see now, which I think is really important, is for the first time we have professional organizations working around Palestine. So we have always been volunteer you know, uh, volunteer groups that have worked within, you know, student groups, um, community organizing, whatever it was, it was, you you know, mainly a volunteer base. But now you have professional organizations like the Institute for Middle East Understanding that focuses specifically around media and kind of, you know, providing media information, correct information and data and resources and individuals um, to change, you know, the, the narrative in mainstream media um, and to provide a Palestinian voice in mainstream media. Uh, you have organizations like Palestine Legal that is working to provide, you know, legal support for Palestinians and Palestinian solidarity activists that are being, you know, targeted a lot in this country right now. Um, mm -hmm. And it's really important to have these professional organizations working in their areas of expertise on Palestine. So, um, and, and that provides the continuity that you need. You know, uh, you have the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. Um, that's like a national, um, you know, uh, yeah. uh, uh, um, collective of organizations that, again, provides resources, um, support, um, you know, information. Uh, and then even Jewish Voice for Peace, I would put in that, you know, category that is doing these amazing actions, national actions, and, and local actions that are, you know, um, really increasing the, the, the visibility of the, of the Palestinian issue. Um, but having these uh, organizations that are actually, you know, with paid staff that are able to focus all of their time and energy in their areas of expertise is really, I think, pushing the Palestinian solidarity movement here in the U.S., um, greatly, you know. So I think that's something that 
we should continue to focus on and develop more? And and this might seem like an obvious question, um, but it sometimes can just be helpful to spell out obvious things. Like, what is uh, what is why should people be involved in various types of action? And like, why is it helpful to have like various you know uh, organizations you know all over the place naturally popping up? And um, yeah. Yeah, is, is, or is it important? Because, we, of course, it's important because, you know, we're not all one person and our skills are not all in one space, right? So while some people feel comfortable and are able to do direct action, which, like I said, provides a lot, like a lot of media coverage um, and, and does get a spotlight, others feel more comfortable writing letters or, you know, lobbying or going out and protesting and walking in you know, walking in the streets or conducting interviews and explaining what's going on in Palestine. So we need that collective. We need everybody to bring whatever skill set they have into this movement, and we don't want to exclude anybody from it because it will take multiple things for us to move, you know, um, uh, our, our governments to actually finally take action, which is ultimately what we are trying to do. So, so long as the U.S. provides this blind support for Israel, unlimited support for Israel, and so long as the U.S. sees its interest, in, you know, tied exclusively to, to, to Israeli practices, we're not going to be able to see um, any real change. Like, we're still going to see the bombs falling on Gaza. Yeah. As much as grassroots organizing is important, it's important to mobilize in various areas to ultimately get governments to no longer be able to maintain their, um, you know, protection and, um, in, you know, uh, providing Israel with total impunity, that mm -hmm. it becomes so costly for them in terms of their own credibility, in terms of economics, in terms of any, that they can no longer maintain their same uh, situation. And we, we're seeing that, right? We're, we're seeing it. It's, it's very little, it's very small, but, uh, you know, recent Gallup polls so that the majority of people of color and younger people are opposed to Israeli military action in Gaza, right? We're seeing the beginning of, you know, aides to the White House kind of saying, this is a genocide that we are supporting. You know, we got to stop. Um, we're seeing, you know, uh, uh, spokes the U.S. spokesperson, you know, stating oh, you know, you can't, you, you can't, you have to limit, you know, Israel has to limit its operation in the South. It can't be like the North. And mm -hmm. as little as that is, that's coming out of the pressure that's happening on the grassroots level. Yeah. That's happening, you know. So, so I think we have to maintain all of these because um, all, only through using all of these various, um, you know, ways of, of, of uh, mobilizing will we, will we ultimately see a change in addition in support of what Palestinians are doing on the ground, obviously. And what uh, do you um, make of, or what, what's your response to the recent, I guess, victory in Morocco with Starbucks? What, what, like many Starbucks are closing down in Morocco. I don't want to be like misquoting. This is definitely not like something I didn't fact check, but I read that Starbucks is like ending its whole operation in Morocco. Um, and then also now, I think H and M 
uh, I don't think they're closing out stores yet, but their sales are plummeting in Morocco. So if A, you know, your response B, does this fall under BD? I mean, it it, it is, it, 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 was this organized with, under the same auspices as BDS? Yeah, I think, I mean, I I think it's within the general call, right? But yeah. boycott has long been a part of Any. Um, the, you know, the Arab world's boycott of Israel has been, you know, ongoing since the establishment of the state of mm-hmm. Israel. So I mm-hmm. don't think we can put everything under this umbrella of a, the mm-hmm. BDS call, which came out in 2005. But obviously, again, it's 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 resonating with people, right? It's resonating and it's re- and it's responding to um, actions that they have long, you know, called for. So anti-normalization. Kind of, to interrupt you, but there's got to be some kind of organization going there where you have enough. No, no, the organization on the ground, but not necessarily um, in response to you know, or or under the umbrella of the BDS movement. But is it a BD? Of course, it's a boycott action, right? Yeah. Um, and it's and it's and it was a very effective boycott yeah. action. Yeah. And um, but it it I think it builds off of a long history of Arab boycott and Palestinian boycott against Israeli products and against you know um, companies that are profiting from Israel. And it's been a, a a tool that has been used by people in the Arab world to kind of show their protest to of of you know of Israel. And because in places like Morocco, you don't necessarily have Israeli products. You have American products. That's where all the anger and and the boycott action kind of targets. Hell yeah! Definitely hope to see more of that. Well, um, speaking of some success, uh, you know, we've talked about how BDS's aims have changed and progressed over time. Um, but uh, it, would you mind comparing that to the BDS move? the well i guess the the boycott movement uh, uh for south africa and particularly you know if you want to um talk about the timelines that's okay i know the south african one took about 50 years and bds were about 20 years in um yeah that's exactly you know what um has been said to us by uh anti-apartheid south african workers that um, you know, South Africa was one of the first places where, well, actually, moving back a little bit, um, it was really in the 2001 um, uh, conference uh, in South Africa against racism that kind of the civil society component of this UN conference against racism kind of launched uh, this this global BDS call. So really, South Africa played a central role even in our current in the current movement that uh, that that has become the boycott divestment and sanctions movement um but definitely we we know that the south african and uh you know uh, call for boycott really happened um in 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 the 1940s and it took a lot of time for people to um accept it and to to begin to work on it now in relation, the Palestinian boycott call has has progressed seemingly much quicker. But of course, we have now what wasn't available then. We have social yeah. media. We have ways of reaching information. Um, it's much easier for people to know what's happening, you know, in other in other parts of the world and understand what is happening in other parts of the world that obviously wasn't you know possible in the 40s and 50s and 60s and so on. So I think that is one component of it. 
where where we have more of a problematic is that um Israel has such strong uh the interests of the US and Israel are so strongly aligned. Yeah, uh, beyond that of what it was with the apartheid South African system oh, that yeah. this support is, and it's multifaceted, right? There is you have the, you know, Christian Zionist, you know, um and and the whole kind of Christian belief system in terms of the need for Jews to return to the Holy Land uh, because of the biblical, you know, whatever. You have the economic ties that are very, very strong. You have geopolitical, you know, interests because it's seen as the only uh, pro-U.S. kind of body, although that has changed significantly with with changes in the Arab world that that are happening from Saudi Arabia to UAE, so so on. But it's always been seen as the only like byproduct of the colonial system that still exists in the in the Arab world, and and then you have the military industrial complex that you know billions of dollars, trillions of dollars are being spent between the U.S. and Israel on military you know development and exchange and so on. So there's so many components. The, the like worldwide sort of like the like the like like Dr. Mamdani said the like the notion of it just being another settler colonial state. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's, it's it's founded on the same principles, right? Yeah, yeah, this sort of like upholding of yes, exactly that that principle. Yeah, and and and, and that's why, you know, Palestinian resistance is so scary, not just for Israel but for the US because, you know, that says a lot as to what is possible if Palestinians, if the indigenous people are able to you know, overthrow this colonial apartheid regime, um, what does that say for other, you know, indigenous peoples movements and the possibilities there? Um, and, and that's a very scary thing for many, many people in power, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, right. And I think that's why some people have, I've been thinking even in my own case, I think that's why so many people have feel so connected to, the Palestinian struggles because um, it's like, yeah, like if, if we can win in Palestine, where else can we win and things happen in chain reaction, but also like for colonial fights that maybe feel failed or like lost causes, you know, which mm-hmm. many of ours do. Um, maybe if we can, yeah, it's like this is a fight that's still being fought. But speaking of that, and I, you know, let's go to that. Let's talk about it again because I feel like we only talked about it for like a minute, maybe um, last. But um, what, what, why do you think, despite seventy-five years of uh, not just oppression but uh, brutal oppression, that the Palestinian spirit hasn't been crushed? I, the, the, you know, it's. Humans cannot live under oppression and subjugation and repression indefinitely. They, 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 the human spirit always works towards freedom and liberty and justice. I believe in that. In any situation, um, people will always struggle for their own humanity, and I think that that and their and their freedom. So. First of all, Israel's occupation and colonization is so crushing, right? It's not a it's not a benign occupation. Um, it is it impacts your your every aspect of life. So, uh, going to school, you engage with the occupation. Going home, you engage with the occupation. 
trying to get any type of medical needs met, you engage with the occupation. It is so um, aggressive and uh, uh, atrocious on so many levels. The settlements being built, you know, in your community, right? Your homes being demolished, your lands being uprooted. Um, you don't have access to water resources, even in the West Bank, right? Um, and definitely now in Gaza, it's just such a, um, a, a heinous occupation that you, even if you wanted to try to avoid it and just stay in your bubble, it's impossible to because it impacts every Palestinian life. Um, you know, I've heard people say there's not one family in Palestine that you'll find that hasn't had somebody arrested and detained in an Israeli prison, right? Um, there's no community that hasn't had a house demolished or a section of their land taken. So, first of all, it's the brutality and the impact on every person's individual life, right? Um, but then even when you look at Palestinians living abroad, you have, you know, Palestinian refugees that refuse to become assimilated into the countries that they took refuge in, which is a very different type of situation than most refugee populations. So they will stay in their refugee camps. They will hold on to their refugee status because they have this unbelievable connection to the land and a need to return to their land. A byproduct of, of the people staying connected in diaspora, if that's a by more than other groups, if that's a byproduct of the same you know, reason that you're mentioning, which is that there's this, you know, constant, gruesome, all-encompassing occupation, or is that, I mean, maybe from the belief systems we come from, it seems too um, awkward or incorrect to say that there would be, or even just, like, incomprehensible that there is, like, something special about the Palestinian people that would result in them, like, resisting more and wanting to maintain their culture more. But you see what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, I mean, that it's not there nature, is... But it's just nurture. Maybe it's that it, it history does matter, and, and all the Palestine being this place, I just cry. you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm actually, you know, kind of really wondering... No, it's, 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 you know, it is a valid question, but I don't think it's different. I think everybody always strives for a homeland, right? But when that is, it's so um, horrendously taken from you, you know, even, even you know, beyond the refugees, Palestinian-Americans who were raised in, 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 in homes that were not necessarily very political, but all of a sudden learn about Palestine and learn about their connection, decide to go, you know, go back. I decided to go back and live there, right, live in Palestine. And I'm not the only Palestinian-American that took that decision. So there is something with Palestinians' connection to their homeland. Um, and I think it's, it's all of these reasons. I think it's because of the brutality of the occupation, because of the fact that Palestinians won't go away. We won't die out. You know, on the ground, working on resistance or living abroad and trying to bolster and provide support, support and solidarity for our Palestinian brothers and sisters. We, we cannot, you know, seeing somebody like Nadine Kaswani who's, you know, going out and protesting every single day and, and organizing protests. Um, uh, seeing, you know, this young lady, Yasmin, that I spoke about with the United Agricultural Workers. She's a Palestinian American that went back and now is working in Palestine um, mm -hmm. on, on cooperatives. So, um, there is a connection. I don't. I don't know that I can 
analyze why it exists, but it does exist. And this is what Israel and the United States and all of their supporters are really not understanding that when Palestinians say, until our last breath, like you have to kill all of us for this struggle to end. And you cannot kill all of us. Alhamdulillah. Great. Beautiful. Um, Okay. Uh, Lastly, how do you address the criticism that BDS is anti-Semitic because it targets Israel? So, I mean, this is really based on, unfortunately, what Israel is attempting to do is make it, um, in its legal definition, anti-Zionism and anti-Israel activism is the same as anti-Semitism, and it's a false conflation, right? Um, Anti-Semitism is a very real and dangerous form of hatred and discrimination against the Jewish people, and it's based on racist values, while anti-Zionism is an opposition to an illegal, immoral, and apartheid regime that currently exists in Israel. And I think that the conflating the two only serves to kind of try to silence opponents of Israel um, to enable it to continue its attacks on the Palestinian people. So I think for the BDS movement, it was very important from us, for us from the very beginning to come to, to um, uh, be based on human rights and the principles of international law and, and, and international humanitarian law and really couched ourselves in an, as a nonviolent movement that opposes all forms of racial discrimination, whether it's Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, black, anti-black racism, uh, sexism, just kind of really stand in opposition to all forms of racism. And that's why the one, you know, the one thing that I would say that does not fall under the auspices of this BDS movement is anyone that's promoting, you know, pro-Palestinian advocacy, but really um, uh, uh, as a cover for, for white supremacist values, right? Right. Um, so Jew- and Jewish activists here in the U.S. and around the world are, are a part of this BDS movement, and they've been an amazing part. They've, they've shown some of the most powerful and inspiring actions, especially during the current Israeli war on Palestine. So, you know, when you look at Jewish Ways for Peace, which is, I think, one of the largest, you know, progressive Jewish anti-Zionist organizations, and mm-hmm. they're carrying out, you know, various campaigns. Um, they have a campaign opposing the tax-exempt status of U.S. charities that are funding Israeli settlements, like Not On Our Dime, and uh, a campaign with Amazon and Google, Cloud, uh, Google um, workers to oppose uh, cloud technology that those companies provide to the Israeli government. Um, they have the Deadly Exchange Program, which is opposing... Uh, exchange programs between the U.S. police and the Israeli military that are funded by the Anti-Defamation League. So they have, they, you know, these Jewish progressive groups are part of the BDS movement. And like I said, you have even organizations inside Israel that support the BDS movement, like Who Profits. So um, it's, you know, it's interesting. We can criticize you know, the U.S. government, we can criticize Biden, we can criticize actions that the U.S. government has carried out, and nobody necessarily would call us anti-American, right? We're saying that we are supporting the, the, the principles of this country of democracy, of equality, and we are saying where this country falls short. But even but that would minute, be a better... Yeah, go ahead, sorry, please. But the minute you criticize Israel, even in the United States, it's becoming illegal. 
to criticize Israel. And you have so many anti-BDS laws that are being enacted um, or attempted to be enacted, uh, you know, throughout the United States. And now you have a bill in Congress that's attempting to um, equate anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism. And that, you know, I, I remember the 1980s within, when the United Nations took out uh, a General Assembly resolution that said Zionism is racism. And yeah. for us to have fallen this far is, is you know, crazy for me. It's it's ridiculous where we're at right now. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, it is. And it's not even unfair because it's like actually Americans live in, like, America if we're talking about, like, Americans meaning people from the U.S. versus, like, anti-Semitic, like, that's meaning against Jews. And, like, Jews live all over the place other than in Israel. Anyway. Anyway. Right. <laughs> but I, I mean, I mean, I think it's a blatant attempt to kind of silence us. And it's really, you know, um, obviously untrue because Israel does not represent all Jews and all Jews do not support Israel. And increasingly, especially with younger Jews, there is an increasing um, uh, understanding of the really uh, violent nature of the state of Israel and how problematic that is. And, you know, the the actual alignment of a lot of, uh, you know, uh, white supremacy, white supremacists with with Israeli leadership, right? Like there's there's a there's a problematic that is you know it, 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 it's problematic to kind of conflate these two because they have they have nothing to do with it. And organizations like Jewish Voice for Peace coming out and saying no, we're anti-Zionists as well, um, and this is not part of the Jewish value system, you know. And we reject it as for you to try to represent it that way. And in effect, what Israel is doing is anti-Semitic because it's lumping all Jews as if they have the same, you know, they're the same thinking and the same ideology and the same uh, uh, belief systems and values. And it, and that's wrong. That's anti-Semitic. Well, unless you'd have anything to add, um, that's that's it for me for now. Oh, um, I, I think I'm good. And we left it there. That was me, Ambe Gergarian, Associate Editor at the Independent Newspaper, speaking with Rehan Barghouti, founding member of the International Movement for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, and a founding member of Adala, New York, here in New York City. That's A-D-A-L-A-H-N-Y, New York City. Thanks for listening.